0: You're listening to the GDPR Weekly Show with your host, Keith Budden.
1: Welcome to episode 76 of the GDPR Weekly Show and the first episode of the GDPR Weekly Show since Brexit, or at least the first part of Brexit, was concluded here in the UK on the 31st of January. So, coming up this week, we have news that the University of East Anglia has paid students £140,000 in compensation following a data breach. We have news that a human error at Fife Housing Group caused the data breach affecting one of their tenants. The Gaelic Athletic Association has urged clubs to stop using WhatsApp due to GDPR concerns, so we have a look at what's behind that. We also have a look at the increase in IT and legal services costs for most companies in the UK thanks to GDPR and in particular GDPR subject access requests. We then have a report that the ICO is urging the ad tech industry to consider their role in the misuse of private data, particularly in real-time and programmatic advertising. We then have the first of a number of articles that we'll be running in this new post-Brexit environment. And the first is looking at whether standard contractual clauses are still the best answer for data transfer outside of the UK and the EU post-Brexit. So a real treatment article there for you, I think, and I hope you find it useful. We then have news that Thailand has announced the implementation date for PDPA hits New data protection laws which are heavily based on the principles of GDPR and doubtless are aimed at making Thailand an adequate country as far as GDPR is concerned. And then finally this week we report the news that 48% of the top 150 UK legal firms have reported a data breach in the last 18 months. So as always a... Mixed bag of articles for you covering all sorts of interests and not just covering the UK but Ireland too and so and the Thailand too and so I hope you find the program useful and informative as always if you have any feedback on the program please email us at podcasts at uk, and please be assured that all of your comments are read but unfortunately we don't have time to reply to them all individually but wherever possible we do incorporate your suggestions into future episodes of the GDPR Weekly Show.
0: You're listening to the GDPR Weekly Show with your host, Keith Budden.
1: We begin this week with news that university students at the University of East Anglia, who had their personal details emailed to hundreds of their classmates, in June 2017 have been paid more than £140,000 in compensation. Just to remind you, a spreadsheet containing student health problems, bereavements and personal issues was mistakenly sent to 298 people at the University of East Anglia in June 2017. The university insurers have since paid out £142,512 to affected students from the University of East Anglia which said it had reviewed its data practices. The Information Commissioner, the ICO, has said that at this time, no further action is needed. One student who'd been affected, who asked to remain anonymous, said the figure was a lot of money, but she was not massively shocked, given the scale and sensitivity of the breach. She went on to highlight subsequent data management mistakes at the university, adding... You'd think leaking private medical histories and names of sexual assault victims and personal family traumas just once would be enough to learn the lesson and move on. The compensation payouts were revealed through a Freedom of Information Act release reported by student newspaper Concrete. For the university, Ian Callahan, the chief resource officer and university secretary, said, Great strides have been made in raising awareness of data management since the breach. He said all data on hard and shared drives has been reviewed, mandatory data protection training has been introduced and access to group email accounts has been limited. The offending email sent to all American Studies students at the Norwich-based University contained personal data relating to 191 undergraduates. It listed extenuating circumstances in which essay extensions and other concessions were granted. Students described how they felt their life was on show. In November 2019, an urgent investigation was launched after personal details about a University of East Anglia staff member were sent to 300 people by mistake. That's not covered by these payouts and will be subject to a report from the ICO at some point in the future, at which point we will, of course, report it to you in the next available episode of the GDPR Weekly Show.
0: You're listening to the GDPR Weekly Show with your host, Keith Budden.
1: Our second story this week takes us to Fife in Scotland, where Fife Housing Group have admitted to breaching data protection laws after sharing the personal data of a West Fife mother who was pursuing becoming a tenant with the Fife Housing Group. The information divulged is understood to include names, date of birth, address, national insurance number, their children's names, previous addresses and detailed descriptions on why she needed to move. The woman, who wishes to stay anonymous, had been completing a mutual exchange whereby she was swapping homes with another tenant. But due to human error by Fife Housing Group, the party who she had been arranging an exchange with was sent all of her personal details. The lady concerned said, I took all my paperwork to Fife Housing Group on December the 18th and it was dated and stamped and left in their care. As you only have a short time to complete the paperwork, I went to visit the other party to get everything sorted and discovered in amongst the letters they'd been sent, my application was also there. I'm extremely concerned about the amount of data that's been shared. I mean, everything is there, even my children's details. I pay money to Experian just to protect my data, and how could someone now take something out in my name on credit? What's more, the house swap is not going ahead anymore. I'm annoyed that Fife Housing are not doing any more about this. They're satisfied that an apology is all that the law requires them to do. Fife Housing Group have written to the woman to confirm that her complaint has been upheld. The letter read, It is normal for one colleague to process all forms for mutual exchanges. However, in your case, because of a colleague being on leave, the forms were dealt with by another colleague who, although extremely experienced, mistakenly included your application form in documents being returned to the other mutual exchange party. I can confirm that we have procedures in place to prevent these types of error. However, in this instance, it was an isolated case due to human error. To prevent any reoccurrence of this unfortunate incident in the future, refresher training focused on our privacy policy has been provided to the colleague concerned. Five housing Group have apologised for the breach and when we approached them, they said that they had informed the Information Commissioner about the incident. A spokesperson for Five Housing Group said the decision to refuse the separation was made solely by Five Housing Group and was in no way affected by any data breach. A further complaint regarding this entirely separate matter is currently being investigated at stage two of our complaints process, and as such, we are not in a position to make any further comment at this time. I have to say that having considered the details of this case ourselves, we here at Insurity are convinced that providing Fife Housing Group have recorded this incident in their data breach register, which we're assured they have, and that they've issued an apology to the lady concerned, then we really don't see that it requires any further action on the part of Fife Housing Group.
0: You're listening to the GDPR Weekly Show with your host, Keith Budden.
1: The Gaelic Athletic Association has told clubs to stop using the messaging service WhatsApp due to GDPR concerns around those included in team groups. It is understood that WhatsApp is used all over Ireland by sports clubs as a simple and efficient tool to relay information about games, training, and events to members, players, and parents. However, the Gaelic Athletic Association have become increasingly worried about GDPR compliance issues surrounding members included in group chats on WhatsApp. The Laos County Board have now urged their clubs not to use WhatsApp and Troke Park confirmed to RTE Sport that they plan to release their own communications app, which they called the Games Management System, currently in development. They're hoping that the Games Management System will be available by the summer. A document sent to all clubs reads, From a GDPR perspective, WhatsApp is not compliant when used for official communication. This is due to a number of reasons. Firstly, if a WhatsApp group is set up, under 12 hurling for example, every parent in that group has their phone number, and possibly profile photograph if they have one, shared with every other parent in the group, without giving their consent for their personal data to be shared in this manner. Also, the lack of an auditing ability means the club and county has no control over their WhatsApp group. This is an issue for a number of reasons outside of GDPR and data protection. For instance, if a parent in a WhatsApp group were to post unsuitable material to the WhatsApp group and then leave the group, the administrators of the group cannot remove such material. The lack of auditing ability also makes it difficult to comply with a subject access request or request to be forgotten if one were received. Along with the above, there is an issue presently with WhatsApp as to the location of the storage of information within it. If personal data is being transferred outside of the European Union, the entity transferring it, which in this case would be the club or county, will have to ensure additional safeguards are in place, which is not possible when using WhatsApp. Therefore, due to these reasons, the use of WhatsApp in an official capacity is not advisable. The GAA told us when we contacted them that they believe it would be prudent for clubs around Ireland to use the GAA's communications app when it becomes available. Laos GAA Children's Officer, Seamus Lahurt, declared at a county board meeting, I can't stress enough, you have to scrap WhatsApp. It will be interesting to see what happens with this, because obviously not just in Ireland, but in the UK, and I suspect across Europe, there are a good number of sports clubs who are using WhatsApp to communicate with their players, with their families and with their supporters. Um, But this does raise interesting issues, And so we will be following this up in a later episode of the GDPR Weekly Show.
0: You're listening to the GDPR Weekly Show with your host, Keith Budden.
1: I think many organisations would agree that they have experienced a rise in IT and legal services costs since GDPR came into force uh, 18 months or so ago now. The best estimates that we've seen put additional spending on the ongoing cost of consulting and technological services in the UK at over £100,000 for mid-sized organisations, while many larger multinational organisations' costs have exceeded £1 million. A key provision within the new GDPR rules, although it's a bit hard to draw it new when it's been in 18 months, but a key provision within GDPR is the responsibility to respond swiftly to subject access requests. Now, as hopefully everyone listening knows, subject access requests are approaches by an individual to obtain details of how and for what purpose their personal information is being used by your organisation. The two groups most likely to make such requests of an organisation are your employees, and your customers. Now back in the good old days, as some would say, before GDPR came into force, it was possible to charge a £10 fee to retrieve this data, but now we're not allowed to do that. No organisation can charge for producing the data unless the the actual request is found to be either too frequent or simply vexatious. Now the enormity and challenge posed by these requests can be considerable. Research collected in 2019 found that almost three quarters, 71% of businesses in the UK have faced subject access requests from their own staff since GDPR came in in May 2018 and more than 67% have had to increase their expenditure levels in order to process these requests. And these fridges are just likely to head in one direction and that's upwards as more employees become aware of GDPR and more things are Digitized. Having said, by the way, that there were certain situations where you can charge for satisfying a subject access request, i.e., they're too frequent or it's vexatious, or to use the ICO's words, they're either manifestly unfounded or excessive or repetitive in character. The problem at the moment is that the ICO has not given any real examples of what it considers to be manifestly unfounded or excessive. So we've had to work on um, essentially best practice, which has been to say that a request more frequently than once every three months can be regarded as being too frequent. Obviously, vexatious is going to be a much more subjective issue which only really you can answer as to whether a query is vexatious for your organisation or not. The other difference since GDPR came in is that under the old Data Protection Act, organisations had 40 days to respond to a subject access request, now they only have 30. While you can request to have more time, you really do need a damn good reason for doing so. The other change is that instead of a subject access request having to be made in writing, A request can now be made verbally, over the phone or indeed via social media to any person in your organisation. So although you might have it neatly on your website, if you want to know more about us or the details we hold about you, then please send an email to privacy at whateveryourdomainis.co.uk. If someone doesn't do that, if they just send it to Joe Bloggs at your company and Joe Bloggs opens the email, it's still a valid subject access request. And so it's up to you to have procedures in place internally to make sure that you're aware of those subject access requests. And so this is where good staff training is so important. Failing to respond to a subject access request in time not only lands you with a penalty, it can also land you with extremely bad publicity because the ICO has made clear it intends to um, make examples of people who don't comply with the new rules. So... If you would like any help or advice on how to ensure that your organisation is best placed to satisfy data subject access requests, and that means not just having your staff recognise when it is a subject access request and falling to the right person, but making sure that you've actually mapped your data and, and you actually know where information is, so that hopefully you can retrieve the information that's needed to satisfy a subject access request, with the minimum amount of investment of time on the part of your staff. So if you'd like advice on how to do that, or you'd like to talk to us about providing some training to your organisation, we would of course be delighted to do so. So please just drop us an email to podcasts at uk. That's E-N-S-U-R-E-T-Y dot co dot U-K and one of our specialists will get back to you.
0: You're listening to the GDPR Weekly Show with your host Keith Budden.
1: Simon McDougall, Executive Director for Technology and Innovation at the Information Commissioner's Office, the ICO, told the lead conference in London last week that his team was pleased with the progress made on cleaning up the real-time bidding ecosystem, which he had criticised in June 2019 for being, in quotes, out of control. Nonetheless, Simon went on to urge advertisers to consider their role in allowing people's private data to be misused on an industrial scale. For a bit of recap here, the ICO launched the probe last summer after more than a year of complaints from privacy campaigners who point out how data is recorded and shared widely among advertising exchanges through real-time bidding in violation of the GDPR. Data controllers like the ICO have the power to impose large fines on GDPR transgressions As you know, up to 4% of a company's annual turnover, or €20 million, whichever is the greater. MacDougal went on to stress that cleaning up an industrial data breach like open market RTB required changing an industry in lockstep. While he said the ICO was pleased with the progress made by Google and the IAB, the industry's major players, on improving online advertising standards, there were many smaller ad tech companies that are not engaged with the RTB investigation. In his address, McDougall said, My question to you, whether you're publishers or ad tech firms, digital platforms, brands, is how you look back on that example of irresponsible leadership in software support relationship and consider your interaction with this particular market. Do you know what's going on in your supply chain? Do you know what data is being collected in your name? He went on to say, in the end, it's the brands that are funding all of this. If a regulator keeps on saying something is unethical and it's illegal, it's problematic, at what point does it become an ethical issue for the, ban- for the brands to keep bankrolling in these instances? McDougall also sought to clear up confusion over the way his recent statement about RTB had been interpreted. He stressed that the ICO was not, quotes, walking away from holding bad actors to account. McDoodle's article on the 17th of January had prompted outcry from the privacy experts that lodged complaints about RTB well over a year ago, such as Brave Browser's chief policy and industry relations officer Johnny Ryan, and the lecturer at the UCL, Michael Veal for adopting a timid approach. As we prepare for action, we have to be very careful to make sure that we continue to be proportionate. We continue to work on evidence, and we do not predetermine what we're going to do or find anyone guilty before things happen, but told the conference. And that's really hard, because that part of the market wants to have a very quick headline, and a quick tweet about some things to make themselves feel good, but the ICO, we feel we need to be more proportionate. McDougall also stressed that the ICO was not alone in acting to safeguard online consumers' data from bad ad tech actors, citing ongoing work by the Competition and Markets Authority, the Department for Culture, Media and Sport, and counterpart ICOs across Europe. We expect this whole issue of programmatic advertising and real-time bidding to simmer onwards as we go through 2020, and so doubtless we will be coming back to this several times during the year in future episodes of the gdpr weekly show so please listen out for those articles and we will also seek to get an interview with mr McDoodle so that we can put some points to him directly and we'll let you know when that's coming up in the gdpr weekly show
0: you're listening to the gdpr weekly show with your host keith Button.
1: Now that we are past the date for the first part of Brexit, a number of customers and other companies have approached us with concerns about how they're going to cope with exports of personal data to other countries, particularly other countries outside of the EU. And indeed, what if the UK itself, at the end of the year, we don't have an agreement and we become an adequate country. Well, first thing I'd say is don't panic. Second thing to say is identify those existing data transfers that you're making to non-adequate countries and what you're doing to cover them. Probably you're using the standard contractual clauses. But there might be other ways now in which you can transfer data safely under GDPR outside of the UK and outside of the European Union. So look at the different available transfer mechanisms. Is there another way of legitimising the transfer other than simply using the standard contractual clauses? For example, for intra-group transfers, think about whether you could use binding corporate rules, which might be a solution in the medium to long term. Or, alternatively, if that's not the case, if it's not within your own group, can one of the... Articles under GDPR Article 49 justify the transfer. For example, can you legitimise the transfer on the basis that the data subject has explicitly consented? Or on the basis of a contract with the data subject, for instance, if the data subject is booking with an airline? Or that it's a one-off, non-repetitive transfer and the controller, i.e. you, has sufficient safeguards in place? And the other thing, of course, is to make sure that if you do have just standard contractual clauses in place, can the person or company you're supplying the data to actually satisfy those standard contractual clauses? So when you look at that, if the importer, if the person you're sending the data to, the company you're sending the data to, has a history of non-compliance or there's any other reason to suspect it will not comply, then there may be some risk in continuing with that importer and you might want to find another company or organisation to provide the process that they are currently providing to your data. Secondly, and it's a matter of greater difficulty for you as a data controller, is the assessment of whether there are any other reasons why the use of standard contractual clauses will not protect data subjects' rights because of a third-party action, for example, through government surveillance activities. A serious concern in that respect is whether transfers to the United States in some circumstances may render transfers unlawful despite the presence of standard contractual clauses or indeed even despite the presence of the EU-US Privacy Shield. This needs to be kept under review and will to a significant extent depend on the nature of the transfer. There is a world of difference between, for example, a large scale data transfer by a social networking platform and the less extensive transfer of a mailing list by a UK company just to provide one mailing out to its customers. What is important is that whatever steps you've taken have been carefully documented and it's worth noting that it's not simply a precaution against the consequences of any judgment that might come out from the central court of the European Union but it's also in keeping with the general GDPR requirement of accountability and transparency. So then, this may be an area where you could need some professional help and we would be very happy to provide that help to you if that's the case. So if you transfer data overseas at the moment and you're not quite sure whether you're still going to be safe now that the UK is not part of the EU and that applies whether, by the way, you're listening to this either within the UK or the EU, then please do get in touch with us. Just drop us an email to podcast at u k, and one of our specialists will get back to you as soon as we possibly can. We will come back to this subject in future episodes of the GDPR Weekly Show.
0: You're listening to the GDPR Weekly Show with your host, Keith Budden.
1: Regular listeners will know that we have mentioned a number of times how GDPR is acting as the base for other countries around the world to base their data protection legislation on. And that's certainly true of Thailand. Thailand's new Personal Data Protection Act, which we refer to as PDPA, will go into force on the 27th of May 2020, almost two years to the day that GDPR was introduced and the parallels between PDPA and GDPR run closer than just them having a similar birthday. The PDPA has borrowed many of GDPR's rules and requirements. These include old favourites, such as the right for consumers to be informed, the right for consumers to access data and request its deletion, alongside a strict consent provision. Unless companies can prove they meet one of several legal bases, they must gain explicit consent from individuals before collecting and using their personal data. First and foremost, I think, is important to realise with PDPA is that because it's one of the first to be adopted in the Asia-Pacific region, it's going to have a regional influence on how countries around the APAC area handle data. Whilst it's true, of course, that Japan is also working on legislation which is based on GDPR, it's interesting now that these two countries are doing this that I suspect other countries in the region such as South Korea, Philippines, Singapore and probably Australia too for that matter are going to have to follow suit. So what of PDPA? Well it covers any business processing the personal data of Thailand citizens whether they are based in Thailand or not meaning any publisher, brand or advertiser dealing in data that can directly or indirectly identify individuals within Thailand needs to sit up and take notice of PDPA. Now, if you already comply with GDPR, you're going to be obviously well down the road with complying with PDPA because, as we've already said, many of the rules and requirements are the same. The legislation, I think it's fair to say, is also part of a wider shift in data perception and accountability that marketers in particular can't afford to ignore. Regulators know that consumers are increasingly aware of data use and calling for better digital safeguards, and so they're creating tighter rules to meet that need. Much like GDPR before it, the introduction of PDPA in Thailand is unlikely to bring about data doom. Yes, it's true that insight, collection and application must be tighter, but as industry leaders I think would all agree, that's no bad thing. With publishers, marketers, and brands all judged on their data processes, adopting strict privacy standards, and they're essential to obey the law not just in Thailand and in Europe but around the world and retain consumer confidence. Responsible data management has become a crucial competitive advantage. We will bring you any updates on PDPA and its implementation as we get closer to its implementation date in May 2020.
0: You're listening to the GDPR Weekly Show with your host, Keith Budden.
1: A study by DocsTor has found that nearly half, in fact 48%, of the top 150 law firms in the UK have reported data breaches since GDPR came into force in May 2018. And of those breaches, 41% were a result of emailing the wrong person. This has come up before so many times. It's In in our experience, it's the easiest way of your organisation having a data breach is simply someone emailing the wrong person on an email or CCing lots of external people in an email when you've had no permission from those people to do so. Either of those is a data breach. and If they happen, you really must record them in your data breach register. Anyway, to come back to this thing with the UK law firms, It's worth bearing in mind as well, of course, that this 48% is only those who've reported data breaches. It doesn't mean that the other 52% haven't had any data breaches, they may not have procedures in place to report them, which is a whole different issue, and of course, I can't emphasize enough, we'd be happy to train you in that. Though there's not yet been an example of a law firm receiving a heavy financial penalty under GDPR, given the number of data breaches, it seems likely that that's only a matter of time. But If you talk to any number of legal firms, and we talk to quite a number, then firms have long tried to find a balance between helping staff work efficiently and working securely. Many are averse to any software that slows users down through pop-ups or any delays to the sending or transmission of email. The ICO, however, has recommended training and process improvements to most of the top 150 legal firms. In about 20% of recorded breaches, the ICO recommended new processes including ensuring appropriate checking and verification procedures when sending out personal data in any format and ensuring that you follow up with the incorrect email recipient if you should send an email incorrectly to confirm that that recipient has deleted that email and it's not still sitting on their inbox in their server somewhere. There is technology available for recipient checking of emails by the Technology assesses the domain names of the recipients and assigns a risk level based on whether that domain name is internal, external or public domain. The sender is prompted to confirm what they're sending and who they're sending it to. Technology acts as a layer of defence against mistakes that can be embarrassing, like hitting reply all to an email you were blind copied on, or damaging, like sending a file full of personal details to the wrong person. And if you think this isn't a problem, it really is sending to the wrong person. Because having said, you contact the person you send it to and try and make sure they've deleted it. Of course, there's nothing you can do to make sure they delete it. You can't actually stand over them and say, delete this. And an example of this came out in the US where a law firm representing Pepsi sent an email to other lawyers and a Wall Street Journal reporter by mistake. The firm contacted the reporter and asked him to delete the email, which he said he'd done. However, he'd printed the email and kept hard copies. It's just to it show that it's nearly impossible to put a genie back in a bottle once mistakes like that have happened. And of course, if we look back just to last month, the UK government itself suffered an embarrassing data leak when it accidentally revealed highly personal details of more than a 1,000 New Year's Honours recipients. And whilst you're looking at all this, it's worth also considering the hidden data that you send each time you send a document or you send a spreadsheet. Make sure you know you haven't got any columns in the spreadsheet that you've hidden because the person receiving it may well know how to unhide that column and see data that you never intended anyone outside your company to see. The other thing to bear in mind when you're releasing data, particularly as a result of a data subject access request, is to think about redaction, to think about and make sure that you're redacting any names within the data you're releasing, which the person you're releasing it to has no right to be able to see. And be very careful about just blacking out text in Word because sometimes people can still retrieve the original document, the words under the blacking out. You're much better deleting the word out and, and putting in a black block just to indicate there was previously a word there. So, I don't want to frighten anybody with this at all, but... Perhaps it is the case of making people think more about the data that you have and how you're storing it and how you're transmitting it. And if that is making you think a bit more, then that's good. I'm really pleased. And we'll be coming back to these sort of items and how you can easily prevent them uh, in later episodes of the GDPR Weekly Show as we go through this year.
0: You're listening to the GDPR Weekly Show with your host, Keith Budden.
1: So that brings us to the end of this week's episode of the GDPR Weekly Show. I hope you found it useful. I hope you found it entertaining. Please do let me know. Let me have your feedback by sending an email to podcast.insurety.co.uk You can find out more about us at Insurety at www.insurety.co.uk And I look forward to speaking to you again same time, same place next week. Have a good week, everybody, and remember to keep your data safe. Check us out on Facebook. The GDPR Weekly Show is an Insurity production. Follow us on Facebook at www.facebook.com slash insurity.